Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all. It's great to be together on a Sunday morning to worship God. And great if you can join us online as well. We're going to start by worshipping our amazing God, remembering how holy he is and how he rules over everything as we sing our first hymn, which is Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our songs shall rise to thee. So let's stand and sing when the music starts. told you that I knew what was going to happen to you tomorrow, and it really happened, 
I think you'll be shocked and impressed. Our, Bible re- our first Bible reading this morning is a message that God gave to a man called Isaiah. And it wasn't a day ahead, it was hundreds of years ahead. And it's in Isaiah, it's in chapter 9, and you'll see it starts with a but. And it's always a good idea to go before and just say, what was was happening before? So just before our passage, we've got people who are in a right old mess. Instead of listening to God... They've been trying to conjure up the dead and get messages from them. Instead of hearing what God's word said, they've gone away from that. And chapter 8 finishes with saying how they're going to be hungry, enraged, speaking contemptuously against their king and turn their faces upwards. They'll look to the earth, but behold, darkness, distress, the gloom of anguish and they'll be thrust, thrust into darkness. And that's, that's hundreds of years ago that was written. It's kind of relevant to us today, isn't it? As people turn away from God and what he says, there's a real sense of hopelessness, a real sense of anguish. And then we go on to the bit that John's chosen for us to read in our first reading, which is the beginning of chapter 9 in Isaiah. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, for you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Every every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Then we come a few hundred years further forward And we go to Matthew, and that's in chapter 4, and it's on page 976 of your church Bibles. And this is Jesus coming. 
And notice two things. Notice how much it ties into what Isaiah said. And notice what Jesus came to say. So I'm going to start reading at verse 12. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John's going to be preaching to us from that in a a little bit. But now we're going to remember what Jesus did in coming as we sing from the squalor of a borrowed stable. And after that, but Mark's got the children's talk, if you'd like to come up the front. So the music. Oh, my God. 
Good morning, good morning. Good to see you all again. It's nearly the summer holidays. Can you believe it? Wow. Now, can I introduce you to my friend, well, someone I know called Bob. Is that all right? Here you go. Here he is. Bob. Now, um, if you were to see Bob wandering down the street, you might think, well, he looks quite a nice, a nice guy. He looks all right, doesn't he? But actually, we can see inside Bob. We can see that actually, he's not quite as nice as he looks on the outside. Should we see what's going on inside a little bit? Okay. We can see that actually, Bob is a bit of a bully. He doesn't treat other people kindly. He's not very nice to them. Maybe you know people that have been like that. Not very nice people. And Bob's been a bit of a bully. And people can see that. See a bit of what he's like when they get to know him. But, you know, we can know something else about Bob as well. Should we show you what else we can find out? Should we dig even deeper? Okay. What else about Bob can we see? Someone tell me what else he is. Yeah, go on. A liar. Yeah, so he's been lying to people. And other people might not realise he's lying, and they might believe him, and they might think, oh, yeah, he's, he tells the truth. Oh, I believe that. But God can see, actually, he's a liar. And really, this is what's going on inside. He's a liar. He's not telling the truth to people. But you know what? We can dig even deeper. Should we go even deeper to find out what he's really like? Okay. What does this say? Yeah. Proud. This is what he's really like on the inside. You know, God can see us a bit like we're looking at Bob. He doesn't just see what we look like, but he can see what we're like inside. And this is what Bob's like. He's proud. He thinks he's the best. He thinks he's better than other people. That's why he's a bully. That's why he lies. He doesn't care about other people. He doesn't love other people. He doesn't love God. He thinks he's the king of the universe. So that's what Bob's like. Can you see? He's not a great guy, is he? Not not the nicest chap in the world. So let's put him back together. So, there's Bob. And we know what he's like. We know what his heart's like, what he's like in the inside. But you know, one day, Bob heard about Jesus. And he was amazed by what he heard. And you know, over time he decided to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus was able to do an amazing thing for him. Should you find out what Jesus was able to do? Remember that God can see Bob and knows exactly what he's like on the inside, can see it. This is what does. This is what Jesus does. Okay. This is what happens when Bob believes in Jesus and follows him. It's like that. Now this is what it says in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. It says, because you have believed, you have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. So can you see it? It's like Bob's put on Christ. It's like he's wearing Christ. Can you see that? Now, here's a question. When God looks at Bob now, what's Bob going to see? What does Bob see? Yeah, when God looks at Bob. Sorry, what did I say? They go wrong. When God looks at Bob, what does he see? Yeah. Change. 
Yeah, how? What changed? Yeah. He sees Jesus. Yeah? So now, when God looks at Bob, he doesn't see all the wrong things Bob's done. What he sees is Jesus and all the good things he's done. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a bit of an amazing thing to get our heads around. But, you know, we may not be like Bob. I hope you're not a bully. I hope you don't lie, or at least you try not to. You know, but actually, all of us are a bit like Bob. All of us have done wrong things. All of us are imperfect. We haven't loved God like we should do. We haven't loved other people like we should do. And God can see that. He knows all about us. But, you know, if we follow Jesus, he can do the same for us. It's as if Jesus surrounds us like this and protects us with his love so that when God looks at us, instead he sees Jesus and all the good things. And God welcomes us with a big hug because he loves us just like he loves Jesus. So there you go. That's something quite big to get your heads around this morning. But hopefully it helps you a little bit. All right, thank you for listening. Well done. Thanks, Mark. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our Lord, we we come to the one who sees us as we really are. Our Lord, you, you know how we put on layers, how we put on pretenses, how we want to be thought of as being better than we are. And we're afraid to let our weaknesses show as well. Lord, we, we, we're so tied up with ourselves that, oh Lord, we don't know how to come to you really because we know that you see us and we know that you're in heaven and we know that you're glorious and pure and that as we think of ourselves and our selfishness, we we know that we're we're like Bob. We're worse than Bob. We we've done things that we shouldn't have done. We've lived for things that we shouldn't have lived for. We've enjoyed things that we shouldn't have enjoyed because we wanted to, and we haven't we haven't gone for the best things. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you are a good God. And we pray that in our hearts we will want to know you more, to be closer to you, to know the joy and peace that comes from knowing you, and to make that our priority. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you love each one of your children so much that you sent your only son. You sent him from perfect heaven, where where angels were worshipping you, to that, that stable, that life where he had no home of his own, where he chose to live perfectly and suffer, and bleed, and die to take the punishment for each one 
of your children's sin. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that if we belong to you, it's not our best efforts, it's not our worst efforts, but it's, it's him that you see as we come to you in prayer. And so we have access to you, our Father. We can come to you like a child. And Lord, we pray that that will be what thrills the hearts of each one of your children. We pray, Lord, that we will be Jesus people. We will be people who are known as yours. Oh, Lord, we may do this or that as a job. We may be retired. We may be at school. But we pray that we will be people who are known as belonging to Jesus and that we share your light with this world. Oh Lord, we we need you to help us and we need you especially to help us as we want to bring other people to, to know you. Lord, we pray that as John preaches this morning, Lord, we pray that you will take his words and use them really powerfully. Oh Lord, we thank you for the work he's done in preparing the message, but we ask that you will make our hearts ready to hear what he has to say. We pray you'll give him real clarity in what he's saying and that your word will do what you've promised, that it will accomplish your good purpose. And Lord, we pray it will be something that uses, you use to turn people round. And Lord, we pray the same for the messages that have already been given today at Rooted and in the Sunday School. Lord, we ask that that seed will make a big impact in people's lives. And Lord, as we look forward to the YP holiday, Lord, we pray especially for the leaders. Lord, we pray that you will give them a burden for the work that they're about to do. Lord, we pray that you will give them the opportunity to focus on you, to have a sense of the privilege and responsibility they have of that week with the young people as they teach them about you, as they live in close proximity to the young people. Lord, we pray that you will give them a special measure of your Holy Spirit so that they are able to live for you and closer to you and so that they may be able to say wise and right and true things from your word. Oh Lord, you you know how we are exposed and how young people especially search for reality and cannot be doing with hypocrisy. So Lord, we pray for your help in a special way for the leaders of the YP holiday. And we pray that you will be with everyone who goes. We pray that you'll encourage the Christian young people. And Lord, that you'll speak to those who don't know you. Oh Lord, we pray it will be a real time marked out by your presence and blessing. And as we've prayed for the YP holiday, we pray for camp. Lord, we pray exactly the same thing for the leaders. Lord, we pray that you will give them our hearts to serve the young people, the younger ones who are going on camp. We pray that you will help them to prepare. We pray that their priority will be on being close to you and the messages 
and the talks that you would have them to give. And Lord, we we thank you that we look forward to the lighthouse later in the summer too. Oh Lord, we pray that as the message goes out on Alderbrook, Lord, that you'll be preparing people to hear it and that your message will go out powerfully. Oh Lord, we, we thank you that you are our God and we thank you that you know each one of us. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us to cast our cares on you We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to remember that our lives are short and that you call us to count our days so that we make the most of our lives, so that we're living to please you. Oh, Lord, you know how hard it is for those who are ill, how pain dulls joy in life, how mental turmoil makes joy hard to grasp hold of. So Lord, we know that you heal people when you are on earth and we pray that you will heal the sick again. Oh Lord, we thank you for the doctors and the nurses, and we thank you for the skill you give them. But we know that all healing comes from you. So we pray that you will heal. We thank you for the healing that you've given so many of us from so many illnesses so many times. And Lord, we pray that as you've given us that energy back, as you've given us that freedom from illnesses that we've forgotten about, oh Lord, we pray that you'll help us to live our lives to the full for you. Oh Lord, we do pray for Rob and Karen as they are worried about Jethro and about that long journey that he's got back home. Oh Lord, we we do thank you for the measure of recovery and healing that there has been so far. And Lord, we pray that you will give him relief from his pain. Oh Lord, we we pray that somehow this event that seems so horrible to us will be something that we can look back on and, and say, yes, it was one of the things that God worked for good for those who love him. Oh Lord, you know and we thank you that you know and we thank you that you're able. And you know that some of us are are worried about work. Oh Lord, we, we pray that you'll provide useful things for people to do. That you'll provide a way for people to support themselves and their families. Oh Lord, We come to you as children, knowing that you delight to give good gifts to your children. And we pray that the greatest gift that we'll all want to have is knowing you now. 
and knowing you forever. Amen. So we're going to sing again. Um, and then after that, John's going to speak to us. And our next song is The Promised Time Arrives, the time of God's appointing, the time when one is born who bears the Lord's anointing. Well, the summer is here, although it may not totally feel like it in some of these days in July. 
and uh, decided to do a summer series of uh, connected one-offs, if you like, because there's quite a lot of coming and going, so people might not be here for all of them or, or many of them. And I've decided this year to have a, a summary theme to it, a summary theme to it. Uh, I thought it would be good after our series in Nehemiah to have something that's directly on the Lord Jesus himself. So our series is Jesus by the Sea. Jesus by the Sea. Nearly called it Jesus by the Beach, but he's not on the beach in all of them. In fact, he's not by the sea in all of them. Some of them he is literally on the sea, as we'll find out. There'll probably be about five or six of these. Um, you might find some of you who know a little bit about the life of Jesus, that you're starting to roll through what might be in the next, uh, the next few weeks. Not necessarily going to um, go in, in order, might make it slightly different so that to tie in with the camp week, haven't decided fully yet. Uh, but we will start with the first. And it's a good place to start because it, it introduces Jesus and his ministry. Now if you don't know much about Jesus, this may set the scene for you. Uh, of who he is, of why he came of our response that there should be to him. And uh, all of these things will come in the verses that we're looking at this morning, which is Matthew 4, verses 13 to 17. Now, I wonder what location you think of when you think of Jesus. If we do a survey, I wonder what would be top. Um, I guess probably Bethlehem. You know, it's a place of birth, it's a best-known place linked with Jesus. Uh, maybe Jerusalem would might feature there, he died near Jerusalem, ministered in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe Egypt, those who know the Christmas story, a, a little while spent in Egypt. Nazareth, perhaps, most of his years of his life on earth spent in Nazareth, and he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. But he had uh, three or so years of public ministry which were mainly in a different place. And that's what we see here as we look in Matthew 5, 4 rather, and verse 13, he moves from Nazareth. And it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun, and Naphtali. They were two of the tribes of Israel which were in that region. So he went by the sea to Capernaum by the sea. Verse 15, he went the way of the sea. So we have this morning our first instalment of Jesus by the sea. And as we look at these very, very useful verses, you're, you're, we want to think about why did he go there? Why did he go to the sea in the start of his ministry? And we're told three things. We're going to look at three things this morning as to why Jesus moved from Nazareth to minister by the sea, the Sea of Galilee. That's a picture of the Sea of Galilee today. Tiberias, which is uh, the main city around the Sea of Galilee, is in the background. This is the area that Jesus went to at this point. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why he went, and three reasons which are all significant to us today. Here's the first. Jesus went by the sea to fulfil. To fulfil. I'm going to spend a little time on this, because I think it could be, could be helpful to us. It will help you if, it will help you this morning to think about this if you're wondering if all this is true. Is it true? Is it really true? will help you this morning if you need confirmation in your faith. Why did he go to Galilee? He went to fulfil what it was said that the coming Messiah would do. Verse 14, it carries on, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. There are many prophecies in the Old Testament, written centuries before Jesus came, which come true in the life of Jesus. And here is one. Isaiah says about uh, the Son of God coming. We read about it and hear about it at Christmas often. We had it read this morning, Isaiah 9 verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And which area would especially benefit from his coming at first? the area of Galilee, this area by the sea. So in Isaiah 9 and verse 1, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So when he comes, where is Jesus' main public ministry? By the sea, here in Galilee, in fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah. You may think, well, this, this Jesus figure, is there, is there any reason to believe why he is special? Is there any reason to believe why he is from God? Is there any good reason for us to take seriously what he says and what happens to him? And one big answer to that question is the way in which his life fulfills so many predictions and prophecies. This isn't a one-off that we have here this morning. We've already had some in the account of Matthew, including Bethlehem, including Egypt, and we will have many more. In fact, 15 times in the Gospel of Matthew, it refers to how Jesus fulfills different prophecies. And it's not just from this man, Isaiah. They're also from Jeremiah and Zechariah and Hosea. And it's not just in Matthew. The other Gospels include many other instances, often quite detailed, of the way in which Jesus fulfilled what was said centuries before. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 are especially impressive and brought in. Jesus is fulfilling 
what was said would happen of the coming Messiah. I remember when uh, the houses were being built uh, around the house I, I, I lived when I, I was younger. It was the Montage Way estate. Some of you were on that. And the houses were being built by us. We were on one of the earlier houses. And they seemed to have a, a different approach to house building in those days. Uh, uh, they would build, they would build uh, the roof by the side on the ground. And then they would build the house. And then it got, it got to the point where the house was um, what needed to be. They would lift the tiled roof by crane, I assume, it must have been by crane, onto, onto the house and then attach it and finish the job. That's the way in which they were doing it in those days. Well, in many ways, the Old Testament is like that unfinished house. You've got a, a building, but it, it's obviously unfinished. It's just not connected all over the place. There's something that needs to happen to bring it all together. And when Jesus comes in the purposes and plan of God, he comes like that roof and sits nicely on the Old Testament to bring it all together and to complete it. Jesus fulfills what's said a long time before, about his coming. It is clearly from God. It is clearly genuine and real. Um, Some of you may have heard of the pop singer Helen Shapiro. Many of you won't. Going back a bit. She toured with the the Beatles and in fact at one point uh, in her teens uh, she was bigger than the Beatles at that stage. And she was a a, a Jew by background. And later in life, when she was about 40, she was given a book uh, about a Jew who became a Christian. The book is called Betrayed by Stan Telchin. I remember reading it many years ago, perhaps some of you have. Um, I'm going to read quite a bit from her testimony this morning. I think it's very interesting and I think you'll find it very helpful. This is what she says after she's received this book. She says, The book was a total shock. I had heard about the odd Jewish person believing in Jesus, but I dismissed them all as weirdos and cranks. Here was a book by a normal, successful Jewish businessman who believed in Jesus, and I couldn't ignore it. It took me only a couple of hours to finish it. Stan Telchin was a pillar of the Jewish community in Washington and a member of different Jewish organisations and committees. One day his daughter announced that she had accepted Jesus as her Messiah. After the initial shock and anger wore off, he set out to prove her wrong. He spent months talking to rabbis, pastors, Jewish believers, Gentile believers reading the Old and New Testaments, church history, Jewish history, you name it. After all that, he ended up becoming a believer in Jesus, as did every member of his family who went off to search for themselves. So that's the book. She carries on. I learned a great deal from reading this book. Most fascinating of all were the messianic prophecies he listed, These prophecies are about the Messiah that are found in the Old Testament. I never heard of them before. Now I learned that in the law, the prophets and the writings, there were dozens of specific predictions about a coming Messiah. 
I had known and loved the hit stories of the Old Testament about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, etc. I knew that we, the Jewish people, had been promised the Messiah, but I never knew about these many specific written prophecies. For example, she says, Stan spoke about Isaiah 9.6. Written, where it is written, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I had always thought that that verse was in the New Testament, as I'd only ever seen it on Christmas cards. But there it was in Isaiah, one of ours. This verse goes on to say that this child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God! Is the prophet saying that Messiah has to be God somehow? Then Stan quotes Isaiah 7 verse 14, which states that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. I had always thought that talk of a virgin birth was most un-Jewish. But there it was in Isaiah, the Jewish prophet. He also listed Micah 5 verse 2 a verse from one of the so-called minor prophets, which speaks of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, even though he was from eternity. So she starts to read these things and think about these things. She carries on. This was amazing enough until I read Psalm 22. It begins with the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I had seen enough films about Jesus to know that he cried these words when he hung on the cross. What I didn't know was that the rest of the psalm follows on to say, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They have divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. It seemed to be a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus, but how could it be? This psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus and before crucifixion was even invented. She carries on. Finally, I came face to face with Isaiah 53. The whole chapter speaks about one who is to come and take upon himself our sins and our punishment. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It seemed to be speaking about Jesus. All of these prophecies seemed to be painting a picture that I wasn't sure I wanted to see. How come nobody had ever showed me these things before? She carries on. I had to find out if these things were really in the Bible. I had to go and buy one. I took it home, opened up the New Testament, and there they were. Prophecies about the Messiah, dozens of them, speaking of him coming both as suffering servant and victorious king. They all pointed, it seemed to me, to Jesus. And to finish off this bit, 
says sometime on, I continued reading the New Testament. By the time I'd read all four Gospels, I knew that Jesus was the fulfilment of all the Messianic prophecies. Jesus was and is the Messiah. This was the most wonderful realisation. But what do I do? This was controversial. She finishes at that point. So I think her experience and investigations just really helps us. And maybe you've got too used to this. You've heard these things. It just helps us to realise how amazing it is that Jesus fulfills all these different promises and how it then has the hallmark of God's plan. This is God's man. This is God's sent person. And it's illustrated here by the sea as he preaches in Galilee in fulfilment of Isaiah. So that's the first thing. I wanted to spend a bit longer on that. What's the second reason that Jesus goes by the sea? The second reason is, or the second purpose is to give light. To give light. Now, you normally think of beaches as places of light, don't you? If you go down towards Eastbourne, you get a a nice big green sign that says, the Sunshine Coast welcomes you. Yet this region by the sea is associated with darkness. Let's read the next two verses, verses 15 and 16. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's a place of darkness, not a comment on the climate, You look at the sort of sunshine hour figures, you know, you do that sometimes before you head off somewhere, you know, how much daylight, how much sunshine hours can we expect? It wasn't that there was a big drop in the area of Galilee. In fact, when we were in Galilee a few years ago, it was so hot, I was jolly glad to be inside the hotel with the air conditioning on, because I think it was in the 40s outside. So it's not a comment on the climate. It's talking about their circumstances and it's talking about their minds. I think a number of things are combining here. It was a long way from Jerusalem, so it was away from the centre of things. It was a sort of despised up north of the country. It was infiltrated with with Gentiles, with non-Jews. It was on a sort of trading area from Egypt to, uh, to Syria. So there was a lot of people passing. It was quite cosmopolitan for those days. And so it wasn't very pure from a Jewish point of view. There were people who were Gentiles, or the word means from the nations there. They were the first to to cop it when invasions came from the north and they were happening around Isaiah's day. They were coming from the north. So who got it first? The people in the area of Galilee. And when the threat came of it, it was an area of darkness. And more than that, it's because of their attitude and approach towards God. They had gone against God and there were things that they didn't know And there was a sadness and there was a hopelessness and there was a guilt associated with this 
area. It says that they were in the shadow of death. That's a, that's a, that's a, what a description. The shadow of death. And there's a nice little cottage not far from here. Or I walk past it quite often. And it is a nice little cottage. It's quite deep in a valley. Um, and it's got tall trees around it. A little wooden bridge by it. And uh, so it strikes me when I see it that it's pretty well always in the shadows. Uh, maybe they like it cool there and you know, they like it feeling slightly uh, way out and, you know, in, in the trees. That perhaps appeals to them. But for me, I think I'd struggle to live there, you know, in a valley, fairly steep sides, um, trees all around. I imagine that it's only sort of in the sort of middle of the summer, in the middle of the day, that they get some direct sunshine. The rest of the time they live in the shadows. I think I'd personally find that quite hard. And maybe that's a bit like that for you in life. You live in the shadow. And it's described as the shadow of death. Death affects other people around you. You you know when you think about it that death is coming your way. It overhangs, it, it ruins everything, it darkens everything. You can't really enjoy life because of the shadow of death. You feel that sort of darkness of the soul of your life, sitting in darkness under the shadow of death, a bit like these people in the area of Galilee. And we're told here that Jesus came to give them light. What he did, what he says, who he was, gives light. And it's not just a mini light. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a a great light. That's quite emphatic. We love it when the the clouds pass and the sun beams through. And for these people in darkness, the clouds pass and the sun beams through. And it is Jesus who brings that light. Jesus brings light into dark lives. On them, light has dawned. Not from inside of themselves, their own little light, but from outside of them, a light has dawned and changed the whole scene. And Jesus does that by dealing with guilt, by dealing with ignorance and not knowing, by dealing with death, by revealing God by giving direction, by giving hope, by taking away shame. Through what he did on the cross and by rising again, Jesus brings light to those who dwell in darkness and live under the shadow of death. And that is tremendous news for Galilee. And what was tremendous for Galilee, which was uh, filled with people from the nations, is here saying, it's good news for the nations, it's good news for us. The people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. It wasn't all that long ago that we looked at that tremendous verse from Jesus, his sayings, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Perhaps that appeals to you this morning. 
Jesus by the sea to give light. And then lastly, Jesus by the sea to preach. He was a a man of miracles, and we'll see that, but he was a man with a message. It was a message which needed to be heard then, and it's a message which needed to be heard now. It carries on in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. We we often think, or, or generally people can think quite negatively about this word preaching. They think of somebody on a soapbox. They think of somebody ranting and raving and shouting. But to to preach is a very positive thing here. It means it's somebody with an important message that people need to hear. It's a message coming with clarity and with conviction. There was an older German poet who said this, Don't give us your doubts, give us your certainties. We have enough doubts of our own. And preaching, in a way, does that. It comes with a clear message from God. Something that's authentic and right and reliable. And Jesus begins to preach. What is his keynote? Verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a message about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. Ties in with Isaiah, which talks about the government of his peace and about the throne, the kingdom coming. God is king. God has a realm of influence that people should willingly join, surrender, become part of that kingdom, be part of the work which God is doing, a work which will progress until the final full revelation of his kingdom. And that kingdom is at hand. Especially now Jesus has come. The opportunity to live in that kingdom, to be part of that kingdom, is here. How do we enter into that kingdom? By repentance, Jesus says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's connected with believing. In Mark, at a similar point, it talks about him coming into Galilee. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. We need to repent to to be part of the kingdom. It's a change of heart and of mind. It's a change of heart over what we have been like. It's a change of heart over what we want to be like. Ultimately, it's a a change of heart before God. To be part of the kingdom, we now want God on the throne, not us. In repenting, you, you take a step back on your life and you look at it and you think, What's happened? How have I been living? Look at all these things. What does God think of it? And you think, the way forward has got to be different with God's help and with forgiveness. I must seek to put him first in my life. Has that happened? 
Have you repented? Has your heart been changed towards your life? You're looking to put God as king. Um, This lady, Helen Shapiro, describes later on what happened to her. It comes on to this, but I'm just going to read the little bit before because I just think this is so helpful, especially coming from a Jew, about what she'd come to realise. It was Bob who lent her this book and she says, I told Bob and his wife that I believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God and God the Son. I believed that he died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead on the third day. I believed, but I still needed to understand why. They showed me in the Bible, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, how Jesus was the fulfilment of the sacrificial system instituted by God when he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Whenever God's law was broken, he graciously provided the atonement that could be made by the shedding of the blood of an innocent substitute. We have all, Jews and Gentiles, broken God's law and are under God's condemnation and deserving of his punishment. He still requires the shedding of blood. None of our good works or religious rituals can make us right with God. Thankfully, we don't have to slaughter animals for sacrifice anymore because all of those sacrifices were fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, she says. He was the perfect Lamb of God. The moment he died on the cross, when he called out, it is finished, the curtain in the temple that divided the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in half from top to bottom. Jesus has paid the penalty for sin and all those who repent and believe in him can come into the presence of God as cleansed and as as a cleansed and forgiven worshipper. It carries on. They explained that I needed to repent. This morning's word. To turn from my sin back to God. I learned that I was a sinner. We all are. Bob asked me if I would like to respond by praying and asking God to forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has done. Only he can forgive me and only the blood of Jesus can atone for me. I could then commit my life to him as my Lord and Saviour. This I joyfully did on August 26, 1987 at 10.30pm even though there were no thunderbolts or flashes of lightning, I knew my prayer was answered. I can't explain how. I just knew it was all so real and true. Jesus came to preach that people needed to repent. There is one example. The message you've heard before, the need to repent. The message you've responded to. Might it be a message that you respond to today? As you think of all the many fulfilments showing who Jesus was, as you think of the way in which he came to give light, as you think of your past life, the inside of it, all that was going on your heart, the need for forgiveness, 
and change. Not everyone can pinpoint a specific time or day. But might it be for you the summer of 2023? Might it be for you the 16th of July, 2023? From that time forward, by the sea, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, let's sing together our last song, which tells of the coming of Christ and of the message which he spread. Talking of Jesus, we sing, You're the word of God the Father, From before the world began, every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. Still misbehaving? Let me read it through then. You left the gaze of angels, come to seek and save the lost, and exchange the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross. With a prayer you fed the hungry, with a word you stilled the sea, yet how silently you suffered that the guilty may go free. You're the author of creation, you're the Lord of every man, and your cry of love rings out across the lands. With a shout you rose victorious, resting victory from the grave, and ascended into heaven, leading captives in your wake. Now you stand before the Father, interceding for your own. From each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. You're the author of creation, you're the Lord of every man, and your cry of love rings out across the lands. Let's pray to finish. 
Lord, we come to you thankful for Jesus coming into this world, into an area of darkness and bringing light, fulfilling so many prophecies and bringing this message of the kingdom and our need to repent. And as we've looked at these words this morning, as we thought about them, we pray it may lead to a, a confirmation in our conviction of the truth of Jesus. We may perhaps for the first time realise the light that he brings, dispelling ignorance, guilt, shame, sadness, hopelessness and the shadow of death. And we might turn in our hearts to acknowledge you as Lord and to enter into your kingdom. Work through the things we've looked at this morning for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.